This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. For writers and reporters who cover the climate beat, getting to the story can be a challenge. On some level, it's the worst story ever. It is ubiquitous, but very hard to pin down. It's being caused by everyone and everything. And therefore, it, it, it's sort of everything and, 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 and nothing. And so finding the narrative is, is very, very difficult. So what can journalists do to get the story out there? My goal was always to speak to the political junkies and the nerds and the news obsessives and the bloggers and Twitterers and all those. Speak to those people about this in a way that reaches them and that they understand. Covering Catastrophe, up next on Climate One. What's it like to write about climate change in a post-truth world? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's show, we'll hear two veteran climate reporters talk about their personal stories, media coverage of climate, and how people respond to the massive evidence that climate is changing in their lifetime and in their hometowns. Elizabeth Colbert's 2006 book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, was instrumental in creating and shaping Climate One. Her 2014 book, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, won a Pulitzer Prize, and she continues to cover climate and other stories for The New Yorker. David Roberts earned a wide following covering climate for Grist. He eventually got so burned out that he walked away from the climate beat for a time. But he's back now writing some of the most incisive climate articles anywhere for Vox. Here's our conversation about covering catastrophe. Elizabeth, let's begin after the 2000 election. George W. Bush pulled the U.S. out of the Kyoto Climate Accord. Uh, you went to Greenland for the first time to learn how that might impact. And then you went to David Remnick, then the new editor of The New Yorker, to pitch him on, on the stories. That, yeah, pick it up there. Well, I, yeah, after um, George Bush was elected, I, there was, if people can think back to that moment, it was still a moment where a lot of stories you read about climate were sort of he said, she said kind of stories, and it seemed like, uh, I, I was really a, a naive at that point, and it seemed like there ought to be an answer to this question, who's, who's saying, you know, what's true, and I should really go find it out, and, and so that's how this whole journey uh, to the Arctic and beyond uh, began. And then those stories became field notes from a catastrophe, and you were at that point kind of laying out still early, fairly early days. Most it was before a lot of before an inconvenient truth, before a lot of people had awakened to climate, and you were looking at what signs in the natural world that hey, this is happening. Yeah, and it was it was this is like uh, 2000, and by the time I really did a lot of the the um, reporting for that book. Uh, for this and for the series that ran the New Yorkers, 2004, and, and that was right at the moment. In fact, the American Geophysical Union had just come out and said, uh, "There's sort of I can't remember the exact quote, but there's unequivocal evidence of climate change right now. The, the signal emerging from the noise." Um, so it was just at that moment where the scientific community, there were a lot of you know people, 
uh, this crazy idea that the scientific community, you know, is just all jumped on this bandwagon. Absolutely not. People were really, really, a lot of scientists were very hesitant to say, you know, show me the evidence. But, but right around that moment, um, in 2003, 2004, a lot of uh, these data sets began to show very clear so signs uh, of climate change. And, and, and so a lot of the scientific organizations uh, came out with pretty important statements at that point. We all know now, in retrospect, how much good that did. And what, it, <laughs> and what did you see, actually, up there in, in Greenland that, that was sort of like, what, what made you gasp? Well, one of the things I did on, on, on in that particular moment is I went to a, a station and I was on the uh, it was it had been set up as a weather station on the top of uh, the ice sheet, which so you're standing on ten thousand feet of ice basically. Um, and they talked about how uh, how the ice had changed and how they had to be there earlier and earlier uh, in the season now because actually uh, it was melting out so badly it was getting really dangerous. And in fact, when I was there, you know, you could see these rivers forming on the top of the ice sheet, and it was getting pretty dangerous. So, uh, so it was a very vivid example of a of, of a very very dramatic change. David Roberts. Around that time, 2003, uh, you were not in Greenland. You were unemployed and adrift in your life. Uh, so pick up your story there. <laughs> That's a much less romantic story than, than Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, I had a, a, a philosophy master's and a half of a philosophy PhD. And I had bailed out of school in academia and didn't know what the heck I was doing with my life and saw a Craigslist ad for uh, an editorial assistant at a small web publication called Grist, uh, which at the time had four, I think, uh, full-time employees. And so I wrote a cover letter and said, hey, I have no experience in journalism, no, no particular interest uh, uh, or experience in environmentalism. However, I really want this job. <laughs> Uh, and wrote a grammatically correct cover letter, which apparently is uh, a rarity, and uh, got, hired, got hired at Grist. Started in 2004, and was mostly doing editorial stuff and writing news blurbs <clears throat> back when that was a thing. And uh, so just sort of wormed my way very slowly but surely from the editorial side over into, uh, over into writing, uh, eventually full-time. It was sort of, I say journalistically, I was raised by wolves. There were no, I was no, I was basically just on my own. So everything I learned about this subject matter and everything I learned about journalism, I learned on the fly, on my own, during those years. And here's uh, <laughs> one funny anecdote. It was around 2004, 2005, I started writing full-time. 2006, I decided, well, okay, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a journalist which means like journalists interview people, right? So the very first professional interview I ever did in my journalistic career was Elizabeth Colbert ah. <laughs> in the wake of her uh, uh, book back in 2006, 11 years ago now. And did you know he was an untrained hack? <laughs> I'm sure she knew by I the think, end of it. I was going to say, I think that David doesn't realize all journalists learn on the fly. Yeah, I hate to disappoint <laughs> him. I hate to, yeah. Elizabeth, you say that one of the challenges of the climate story is the absence of many colorful characters. Why is that? Well, I mean, climate change is 
on some level, it's the worst story ever. Um, <laughs> it is ubiquitous, but very hard to pin down. Uh, it's being caused by everyone and everything. Uh, and therefore, it's sort of everything and, and nothing. And so finding the narrative um, is, is very, very difficult. And unfortunately, I would say, and this is uh, journalistically good and for civilization very bad, uh, it's becoming easier and easier. You know, it's becoming easier and easier to go places and have people say, this is climate change, we're looking at it, uh, we're experiencing it. So, so from a journalistic perspective, actually, just in the you know, 12, 13 years that I've been doing this, uh, that, that part of it has really changed. But there are uh, oil companies. Is it, there, there aren't any good villains, or is it? Uh, you know, there's a lack of a, a villain with an intent to inflict harm. Even people who are burning fossil fuels think they're providing jobs. Is, is it that the pe- the people who are doing solutions are kind of boring and process and not very sexy if you're doing something? Well, I mean, it's all of the above, and certainly there are villainous people, and, you know, I can name names if you want. Um, <laughs> Just but, one, one or two. <laughs> uh, James Inhofe, you know, I mean, they're, they're well-known, you know, sort of, you know, deniers, and, then, and there was, you know, the long ExxonMobil campaign, and there's the Heartland Institute, and, but they're just people sort of putting out falsehoods or propaganda or whatever. They're not even... Um, some of them are pretty smooth characters, too. But, you know, fundamentally, I think that the problem is even as bad as some people are and as misleading as some people are, and, you know, the, the problem is, you know, I, we all put gas in our cars. So even if ExxonMobil is, you know, fostering a lot of misinformation, which they certainly have, uh, you know, there's a lot of soul-searching that we all have to do. And so it's not enough even to say that there's a villain. And, you know, it's just definitely one of these situations where we've, we've met the enemy and he is us. We're all complicit and that's hard, hard to deal with. Uh, Mark Hertzgard is a journalist who believes that many of his colleagues are too concerned about reaction. He wrote uh, an article for The Nation. Let's listen. I think that too many journalists, especially journalists inside of Washington, D.C., worry way too much about what kind of pushback they're going to get from either their viewers or listeners or readers and the politicians. We have to follow the facts. Look at the coverage of Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, especially on television, on the networks. ABC and NBC went an entire week of coverage without once mentioning climate change, without once pointing out that these storms are getting stronger because of climate change. That's what the science says. That is irresponsible journalism because we have been warned about exactly these kinds of extreme weather events. My last piece for The Nation, where I said that that this is murder, it amounts to premeditated murder, and we as a society need to punish it as such or we encourage more of it. Those are strong words. I would not have used those words in 1992 or even 2002. But now, after watching disaster after disaster after disaster, and above all, seeing how the climate deniers in Washington and in the big corporate enterprises of this country are continuing to block action, I think that the phrase premeditated murder is entirely accurate. Journalist Mark Hertzcard. David Roberts, your reaction? I get it. I get there's a cycle people go through when they struggle with climate change where they sort of, the immensity of it dawns on you in kind of stages. 
And at each new stage, you're like, damn, damn. And you just want to like, you know, escalate. And there's journalists now who, who get caught on the cycle who just like, it's even worse than that. It's even worse than just like looking for these new metaphors, escalating and escalating. But for me, like I escalate and I escalate and I get as high as I can. And then I got to get up the next day and write more. You know what I mean? So at a certain point, you have to find uh, an equilibrium. You have to find a way to operate on a day-to-day level. You can't just like be in this continually escalating <laughs> sense of, you know what I mean? And so I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but, but like I've done that. I've gone through the cycle of escalating, escalating, escalating rhetoric, and then like there's nowhere to go from there. Then you got to get up the next day and write more, you know? So, so and also, my sense approaching this subject is that there's sort of cultural and political news, and then there's environmental news in this weird satellite, more or less ignored by the planet. But the two are not very connected. And so my goal was always to speak to the political junkies and the nerds and the news, you know, the news obsessives and the bloggers and Twitterers and all those, to speak to those people about this in a way that reaches them and that they understand. And if you just are pounding the table about how this is a crisis and we're all going to die, even if it's true, you get slotted into a mental bucket of the people pounding the table. And, and, and like once you've heard someone pound the table once, you don't really need to go back and hear him pound the table again, you know, like the table's pounded, like we get it, you know? So, so I want to be read on a day-to-day level. So the point is, I'm trying to bridge those two worlds in terms of language, in terms of concerns, in terms of people. That's always been what I've been trying to do. And you can't do that if you just follow this escalation. Morning paper is on its way. It's all bad news on every page. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about covering catastrophe and the climate beat. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about covering catastrophe with veteran climate reporters Elizabeth Colbert, who writes for The New Yorker, and David Roberts, staff writer at Vox. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Elizabeth Colbert, when you write a piece, first of all, you have to sell it to your editors, but are you thinking about informing people, telling a good story? Do you want to inspire action? Do you think about the impact of your stories and what people will do with the information you give them? Um, you know, of course you think about it, but I, I do want to be honest and say that's not my job in a way. And if journalists went around always um, thinking about what impact, you know, we, we I, I come out of a newspaper background. I worked at the New York Times for a long time. And, you know, our, our job was really tell it like it is. That, that was our job. And I, I still really hew to that. I'm sort of an old-fashioned journalist in that. And I, I think that telling it like it is and, and, and sort of people can do with this information what they will, um, that's still the role of, of journalism, even as journalism becomes more and more partisan and more and more uh, you know, tribal. Um, I, I guess I still believe in, 
in something called that we used to call the truth, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I try to follow that and. I can't really know how it's going to impact people. Think of, you know, you would hope you'd have, you know, a million readers. I have no idea how many people are going to, going to react. So I try, I, if, you, if you are always thinking about that, you, you, you're not going to take the first step. And so you're not trying to solve the problem? I don't, that's, that's <coughs> way above my pay grade, solving <laughs> this problem. Yeah, I am trying to give people um, information that I hope you know, I do hope on some level will inspire people, you know, to, to think about it at the very least. Um, and, and I hope a certain number of them will be inspired to do something. Um, but I can't take responsibility for that because, as I say, it's just above my pay grade. Bill McKibben used to write for The New Yorker. He crossed the line from journalist to activist. Uh, Jim Hansen is a scientist who crossed the line into activism. Some people think that hurts his scientific credibility. Uh, Bill McKibben, who's been here on this program several times, says, look, more information is not solving it. We need to organize. We need to, uh, you know, one more article, one more book, one more podcast or radio show is not going to get it done. Elizabeth, what do you think about that step across that line? You know, I, I really, really admire what Bill has done, and it's, an, you know, really an amazing accomplishment, this sort of movement that he has, you know, really personally, uh, I don't want to say he's personally, you know, responsible for the whole movement, but he's really, really played a key, key role in it. And I think that's super impressive because, you know, journalists are not movement builders as, as a rule. So it's a really, to be both a successful journalist and a movement builder is an extraordinarily impressive um, achievement. But I, I think about it, I don't think that I'm very talented in that way, so I, but I often think, like, would that be a better use of my time? Because as you say, uh, another article, is that really going to move the needle on this? Um, you know, it's discouraging on all fronts. I'm, I'm sure, I suspect Bill is discouraged right now. I don't know. I, I haven't asked him lately. David Roberts, your thoughts on the idea that more information will lead to more action. Another scientific report, another podcast, another movie. Uh, will more information lead to more action? Uh, I don't think about, and more information about climate change necessarily will. I guess, to me, the dichotomy between sort of straightforward objective journalist and activist leaves a lot of room in between for various and sundry roles, and I don't know that I would put myself on either end of those, but the way I sort of view it is, at this point, information about climate change has been dispersed, lots of people out there are, are, have absorbed it and are ready to do something. And to me, what's lacking is uh, understandable stories about how we deal with it. Like, how, what are the solutions and, and, and what, are, you know, what are the sort of political and social and economic problems we have to solve to get there? So I view myself as sort of arming people like, like Elizabeth, I would be a terrible activist, just awful. So I, I view my role as sort of like arming people who do go out and do stuff with good information. And in that sense, I think more information does help. Like I, in that sense, I think people want to know, like EVs, is that the transportation solution or is it some mix or like what, if I want to change transportation, what do I do? So I can give people information about the trends and the, and the, you know, the, the facts of that and, and help guide them. So it's, 
somewhere between those poles, I guess. And how about the, the human brain, though? There's a lot of interesting things. Part of my journey uh, in Climate One has been starting with science and these, these abstract systems. And the system that I think is perhaps most challenging is the one between our two ears, our, our cognition. And David Roberts, climate is uniquely, and, and, and Elizabeth Colbert touched on this earlier, climate is everywhere, yet it's nowhere. And it's we are uniquely wired not to respond to this threat. If there's a, a person with a gun or a tiger, we are wired to respond to that immediate threat, and we are not wired to respond to climate change. Yeah, it might as well have been designed to evade our, <laughs> to evade our notice and evade our uh, filters, and that's true, and it's been hashed over to death at this point. I, I sort of think that Hashed over to death for, for some people, but for a lot of people listening, it may not, it may be, may not be so old hat. That's true. Well, uh, well, I mean, the place to start is just we've evolved with certain emotional and cognitive machinery that was designed for proximate, <laughs> right? It was designed for your village. It was designed for your immediate physical surroundings. And everything we know or think about in terms of more distant, bigger problems, we do by metaphor, basically, with you know, who's up, who's down. We, we, this is all George Lekoff, if you've read your George Lekoff. It's all m metaphorical, based on similarities to our physical experience. The problem with climate is that you've gone so far away from physical experience that we lack metaphors, we lack ways. So all our metaphors are kind of capturing bits and pieces of it, but there's almost, we don't, just don't have the language or the conceptual apparatus to wrap our heads completely around it. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that aside from professionals, we don't really need to. Like, if 98% if, 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 if of the American public can say, climate change is a problem, politicians should do something about it. To me, that's like, they know enough about climate change. The politicians are the ones who are supposed to know, like, you know. Elizabeth Kohler, you've written about facts don't change people's minds. We're not rational beings. If, if we were rational beings, you know, there's these red lights flashing in this building. People would run out. There's red lights flashing on our planet, and we're not responding. We're going along business as usual. Well, we see, I mean, you know, the, the social science of the last, you know, couple decades has proved this, you know, just time and time again. And, it, and you know, it sort of gets back to what, what David's saying. I think that, you know, we're, 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 we're just you know, evolved creatures, and we evolved to, to, to solve a certain set of problems, and the fact that we've now created for ourselves an entirely different set of problems, um, I think, is, is just, you know, one, one of these many examples of sort of evolutionary, you know, mismatch that, that scientists talk about. Um, but one thing I'd like to add to what David was saying before is, is not only is climate change you know, not like some, you know, tiger coming to your village or, you know, even our, even villages are actually late, very late in our evolutionary history. Um, but it actually is, I think, the meta other metaphors that we search for or look for, which are other forms of, p of pollution problems that we've, you know, solved, let's say, um, it even is different from that in the sense that uh, climate change is, is a cumulative problem. So when we went to solve, you know, acid rain and we tried to get sulfur dioxide out of uh, smokestacks, uh, then the acid rain problem actually relatively quickly was, I don't want to say solved, but it was uh, mitigated. Whereas with climate change, the problem is it's a cumulative, for all intents and purposes, it's a cumulative problem. And once you decide to solve it, the sense that, okay, that it's too late now, uh, I think people don't 
have a really hard time getting their heads around that. They think, when it's bad, when I look out the window and things are bad, then we'll solve it and we'll deal with it. But it, it doesn't work that way. And so we're up against not just you know, the mismatch with the tiger, uh, but the mismatch even with other problems that we have as a society faced, uh, environmental problems. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just add, I'll, I'll put the same point more provocatively. I think the fact that climate change entered social consciousness in the guise of an environmental problem has done more to distort the way people think about it and the way we've tried to react to it than anything else. And you're, you are quite clear that you were not environmentalist, as we heard when you, when you got your first job, and, and you, uh, were not, you're not part of the environmental tribe, and you didn't, you're not part of that orthodoxy. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, certainly not trying to cast aspersions on environmentalists. God bless them. I just, I didn't come up through that. Right, so I think there's sort of a, a pipeline now where people come up through college, they canvass for the Sierra Club, they learn certain, you know, there's certain ways of thinking that come along with that, and I just sort of came from outside that for good and bad and, and, didn't, and didn't think those ways. But I just, I think, like what Elizabeth said about it being cumulative, about it being so slow, and, fur, and furthermore, in, it's not just physically different than those problems, but politically once you put something as an environmental problem, there's this whole set of stereotypes that depend on it. Opponents do it automatically. Yeah, yeah, like everybody knows how to deal with environmentalists. They're in, pa they're in paragraph three. Environmentalists said, no, no, no. <laughs> and then, you know, like everybody just, that's, that's baked in, right? Politically, it's also, I think, a poisonous way of thinking about it. Uh, not long ago, uh, Hank Paulson, who was Treasury Secretary during the financial crisis, was sitting here on this stage and said, as, as bad as that was, humans could sit around in a room and they had the tools, you may like them or not, they had the tools to solve that problem when it got really bad, basically print money. And <laughs> when uh, the climate crisis gets bad, any group of wise men and women sitting in a room do not have the ability or the tools to solve the meltdown the way they did with that financial crisis. We're talking with uh, New Yorker writer Elizabeth Colbert and Vox reporter David Roberts at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round. The first part, I'm going to mention a word or phrase and ask them for their first thought, unfiltered, without thinking about what anyone would think or react. So, David Roberts, Energy Secretary Rick Perry. <laughs> Dunce. <laughs> Elizabeth Colbert, Scott Pruitt. Ooh. I, I already used dunce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nefarious. David Roberts, Comedian Andy Borowitz. Oh, God. No comment? Do we have no comment on these? Uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Not Col my cup of tea. Elizabeth Colbert, two degrees of warmer global average temperatures. Bad. David Roberts, Texas climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe. Hero. <laughs> Elizabeth Colbert, Ann Coulter. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, she did tweet uh, recently, quote, I don't believe Hurricane Harvey is God's punishment for Houston electing a lesbian mayor, but that is more credible than climate change. I'll let that uh, speak for itself. Uh, that was her tweet. Uh, now, true or false, I'll ask uh, Elizabeth Colbert and David Roberts to respond to a statement with true or false. Uh, that's a one-word answer, even if that reduction causes you agonizing pain. <laughs> 
true false Elizabeth Colbert, rats have followed humans to nearly every corner of the globe. Undeniably true. <laughs> uh, also Elizabeth Colbert, and you interviewed an expert for the sixth extinction who thinks one day rats will take over the earth. True. <laughs> David Roberts, you think they have already taken over this country. <laughs> <laughs> true. Meta metaphorically true. David Roberts, people should stop trying to persuade others to adopt their views. It rarely works. Uh, agony. <laughs> false. David Roberts, true or false, no one cares what the Pope thinks. <laughs> false. False. Why are you trying to do this to me, man? We talked on the phone last week. We had a different answer. Um, Private conversation. <laughs> Elizabeth Colbert, fashion reporters do stupid and trivial work. Wow. I'm gonna, yeah, true and false. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Colbert, many liberals opposed to GMOs do not understand the basic underlying science. Mm, probably true. David Roberts, that's similar to conservatives who don't understand the science underlying climate change. Uh, I think that's false. Elizabeth Colbert, many opponents of nuclear power don't understand basic nuclear science. <laughs> well, I mean, on some sense, obviously true, but perhaps irrelevant. How's that? Okay. Uh, last one for David Roberts. You are a smarmy coastal elitist who was mistakenly <laughs> born in coal country of Tennessee. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give them a round for getting through that lightning round. <laughs> Talking with David Roberts and Elizabeth Colbert at Climate One, I'd like to talk about the importance of personal action. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert, a lot of people think, read your articles, okay, I get it, what can I do? So what is the significance of personal individual action? What can we do that matters? Well. I mean, there are things you could do that would make a difference to your own carbon footprint, but I, I think I, that, you know, looking at the very significant numbers, you know, Americans are responsible for, you know, many tons of emissions per year, and when you look at what it would take to really take your emissions down to, say, the, you know, the average level of what someone in India is emitting, it, it, it's... it's it would take it would take you know cutting off your power lines basically you'd have to like really live you know off the grid and very 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 differently from the way most of us live today um so you know the things that that make a big difference are you know not driving and not flying and uh and and those are those are serious you know commitments for many Americans but they would make a difference to our carbon footprint not heating your house not air conditioning your house i mean so there's a lot of you know things to do, but but most of us, you know, to be frank, are not are not willing to do them, um, and I include myself. So, I think that you know when people ask me what can I do, I, my answer is always you know you can do the things, and you should do. Everyone should be trying, simply for you know ethical reasons, to reduce their own carbon footprint. But the things that are going to make a difference are so huge; they're obviously political. Uh, and it means getting involved uh, in politics and, you know, really immersing yourself in that and being part of the constituency for very serious change. Uh, it, it's a full-time job, actually, 
Um, but, you know, that's something that people can do. And that gets us something, which is the idea that we can all sort of address this, the, the, our conscience and solve this problem within basically maintaining our comfortable lifestyles as they are. Change your diet a little bit, change your behavior a little bit, not have to change your profession and become a, a radical activist from, rather than a New Yorker writer. Uh, is, you know, can we really address this problem staying in our comfort zones or is this going to be so big that it's going to cause us to change careers, change our lives? In We're a way? certainly never going to voluntarily give up material comforts on a scale that matters. I'll say that categorically. <laughs> the only way we're going to give up material comforts on a scale that matters is if, uh, is if it becomes law. That's what laws are for. That's what governments are for. What about, some people would say the power of a moral example. Um, you know, what if it was like getting on an airplane is kind of like clubbing a baby seal. It's like something you just <laughs> don't do, right? Or owning a slave. No one here thinks about owning a slave. Um, Elizabeth Colbert? Yeah, no, I mean, I think people have um, a, a long time, you know, when, when I was um, writing uh, uh, field notes, I in, interviewed a, a scientist in Princeton, Rob Sokolow, um, and he made the point to me, you know, look, this is, this is like slavery. At a certain point, there will be, you know, and it, things will flip and, and emitting carbon will come to seem, you know, bad. Now, we haven't gotten there, um, and, and, and it still raises the question of whether we're going to, you know, whether you're going to be able to get on a, a plane, you know, fueled by biofuel potentially, uh, or whether you're simply not going to be able to get on a plane. And I can't answer that question, nor can I tell you whether that's going to happen. Um, but it's possible. It's possible that that uh, will, is what we need, and it's possible that that will happen, that it will simply become ethically unacceptable, you know, to, to emit CO2. And, and, and that... Uh, I, I, I look forward to that day. But, but let's note that slavery was not conquered in the U.S. by slavery becoming morally unacceptable. That's, it was not solved through persuasion of slave owners to voluntarily give up their slaves. <laughs> good point, good point. You're listening to a conversation about news and the climate narrative. This is Climate One. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about covering the climate beat with veteran journalist Elizabeth Colbert from The New Yorker magazine and David Roberts, staff writer at Vox. Here's Greg. Elizabeth Colbert, do you ever censor yourself and not talk about climate because you'll think you'll be a downer at a social gathering or, oh, there it goes, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we know. Like, do you, do you ever, like, pull back and not go there because you just want people to like you or not? not <laughs> <laughs> I think I, 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 well, I don't get invited to that many social <laughs> She's already um, got a reputation. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not a it's it's not really a, an in, a calling card. Um, de, the Debbie Downer problem. I I don't. I, I think that's actually a, a bigger issue about do we talk about these things? You know, and and people have written about this too. You know, do we actually even talk uh, about climate change? Um, or is it something like you know you don't talk about you know death at a you know social gathering? Um, uh, even though everyone is aware uh, that they're all going to die eventually. Um, so, 
I think that these are interesting questions and, 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 and important questions, and, and maybe if we were all talking about climate change, we'd actually be, be doing something, but it, it does have that sort of like, you know, don't talk about that kind of feel to it. David Roberts, is the Paris Climate Accord meaningful progress? Uh, yes, unequivocally yes. Elizabeth Colbert? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it is, it is progress. It's, is it enough progress? You know, clearly no, but it, it's important it was it was for that one you know brief shining moment that it existed, uh, where well, uh, still exists. The it U.S. Still has exists. not full, full, uh, really pulled out yet, and the first day the U.S. can pull out is after the next uh, presidential election. Yes, that's true. But I think it it it, it existed on a um, aspirational plane. You know, this is this is we all agree that we need to do something, and we all agree that we need to actually ratchet up our. Uh, a commitment as, as time goes forward. And when you start pulling, I think what the Trump administration is doing that is so damaging to this framework, which was, as I say, built largely on hope, uh, is, is saying, well, you don't really have to participate. And that uh, is really, I think, potentially, well, we'll see. We're going to see what happens. But I think that uh, people had to have faith in each other. It was a moment of, of global cooperation. And once the, the big, one of the biggest players in the room says, I'm not cooperating, that, that's, I think that is very damaging. I'm afraid. I, I, I almost think, depending on what you ask me, that that's wrong. I almost think that Trump crapping all over the Paris Climate Agreement is the finest endorsement the Paris Climate Agreement will ever <laughs> will ever receive, and and you saw that you saw the reaction among the other participants, which is they uh, drew together and redoubled their commitments, and you saw these expressions of commitments from cities and states all over the place. Like I I think if anything, Trump might have galvanized it. So I I would be willing to predict that the U.S. will never formally withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement and that Trump's shenanigans with regard to the Paris Climate Agreement will, in the long term, serve to strengthen it. He certainly made it more popular than Barack Obama ever could have. Um, David Roberts, you have two kids, 14 and 12. Um, how do you talk to them about climate? Do you, do they, are they sick of it? Are they bored of it? Do you, do you shelter them a little bit from how dark you think it is? Uh, you know, my family, we all share a morbid sense of humor, so, <laughs> but when I talk to them about it, the way I try to phrase it is, it's a big, all-encompassing problem, but the flip side of that is that you are so needed, and there are so many places where you are needed, and there are so many ways that you can be helpful, like, you can go into engineering, you can go into politics, wherever you go, you're needed to solve this problem. So in a sense, like, it's perverse to tell kids, like, at least you're going to have moral clarity, right? <laughs> at least you're not going to be like the U.S. in the 90s, where we're all peaceful and prosperous and just handle it really badly and flail around not knowing what to do. Like, you're going to know what to do, but you're going to have clarity throughout your life. Elizabeth Colbert, you have three sons. How do you think... How do you talk to them about it? How do you think it'll affect them? I, 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 I'm with David here. We, I definitely come from a family with a very morbid sense of humor. <laughs> so. uh, but I do have one son, actually, uh, who's studying atmospheric science. So I guess something <laughs> got through them. Yeah. Great. We're talking uh, with Elizabeth Colbert and David Roberts at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, Andy Gunther. Um, 
thank both of you for your incredible contributions to our national dialogue. And um, particularly, I wanted to ask about one of those, which was Dave, your piece about brutal, the brutal logic of climate change, and the, uh, which was, I thought, one of the best depictions of the nature of the incredible uh, decline in emissions that we have to undertake. And I was wondering whether um, in the last, that was probably four or five years ago or something like that, I was wondering whether, in the, particularly with the decline in the cost of renewable energy, whether you think that that's, uh, uh, if you were to rewrite that piece today, um, would it be a little less doomy and gloomy? <laughs> so the cost of renewables is a pretty positive story, Dave Roberts. Yeah. Um, I hate taking credit for stuff like that. There's a climate scientist named Kevin Anderson who, who, who is among the doomiest and gloomiest. And, and those posts were more or less uh, a, a rephrasing of his work. I'll put it this way. The destination's very far away, right? And, 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 and the fastest we can go seems inadequate. So, so all these discussions lately about the exact size of the carbon budget to me are a little bit silly because the destination's so far away we can barely see it. If it's this close or that close, we still, the imperative to do as much as possible, as fast as possible, is the same today as it was 20 years ago and it will be the same in 20 years and nothing we learn about the science is gonna change that, I guess is what I would say. Next question, welcome. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. Uh, I'm a uh, artist and philosopher of climate art. Uh, David, I wanna ask you the same question, but the rephrased version that I asked Al Gore, um, the context of which was noting something you wrote recently around all the doom and gloom in fact, which was that we have these things we're worried about people's hope and we have all kinds of reasons why we think it's gonna shut down people, et cetera, but that that's based on short-term studies, and that, but this is a long-term problem. So my question is, what are we shortchanging ourselves collectively in by this avoidance of that truth or the, the constant avoidance of anything that's not hopeful? Thank you, long-term thinking. Yeah, the, the discussion of how doomy and gloomy to be, to me, is kind of tedious, A, because different people can do different things. Like what Elizabeth does with Field Notes from Catastrophe is not, she didn't try to do everything. She just laid out the problem. Like other people can talk about solutions. Not everybody has to do everything. But I think no one knows as much about the social science of how to persuade and change and move people as they say they do. I think most, most discussions, particularly discussions of social science, undertaken by climate scientists who read an article about it last week <laughs> are, are less than rigorous. So my sort of advice to people is like, I'm fine if social scientists keep pursuing that, but to the people who want to communicate and do stuff about it, just do what feels right to you. And don't worry about dumb social science studies, right? Like humans are humans. We need some fear. We need some hope. We need some kick in the butt. We need all sorts of things. And different people will provide different things. And just do say what you think is meaningful and true. And don't worry about the rest. We're talking with Elizabeth Colbert and David Roberts. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Amanda North, and this is really for both of you. I think a lot of your uh, comments have been directed to about America and Americans and our strong sense of individualism. When you look outside of America, there are many other cultures that place the good of the whole society above that of the individual. And there are other governments that are more centralized in their approach. You can 
say whether you think that's a good thing or bad, but in a topic like climate change, you look to China and see that they are capable of making changes and have demonstrated some changes as well. So I'd just be interested in your thoughts looking outside the United States. Are there more causes for optimism? And should maybe some of those stories be told too? Elizabeth Colbert. Well, I, I think that's a really good question, a really good point. And I think that the moment that we live in it, you know, is it will we'll be looked back on in a very, very interesting way if we look back. Yeah, I mean, that, that this is a moment where we chose to say, you know, we're, we're, the, we're one of the prevailing lines, and from the major party right now is that government is bad. At precisely the point where you can't do this, I think we're pretty much everyone who's looked at this problem would agree without very, very significant collective action. Um, is that a coincidence? I, I, I don't know. But in terms of what's going on in the rest of the world, I think you do see a lot more um, action uh, in, uh, in other countries um, where collective action is much more part of the uh, part of the culture, you know. And and you might argue, uh, you know, good or bad forms of collective action, but but where you know decisions are made at a very high level and then they're carried out. Um, and so there is more going on in a lot of other places, and, and, and maybe those stories should be told more. Next question, welcome. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. I really appreciate hearing and seeing both of you talk. I've followed your work for a long time. We're going to go past two degrees Celsius. <laughs> when are we going to begin geoengineering? Geoengineering, who'd like to take that? I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the business of categorical predictions, because having learned in the pundit game that one is never held responsible, <laughs> uh, I, like to make, I like to make categorical predictions. So I will predict that we will never, well, it depends on what you count as geoengineering, <laughs> like ag agriculture, stuff like that, tweaking agricultural practices so they absorb more carbon, stuff like that. Uh, will do. But in terms of these grand schemes for firing up particles into space and the mirrors, the space mirrors and all that, we will never do any of that stuff. Next question. Welcome. Nate Johnson. I'm senior writer for Grist, where Dave was before hey, he Nate. abandoned us. <laughs> um, my question for both of you, when I talk to people, interview people about the climate, there's people who really want to talk about innovation as solutions, and there's people who really want to talk about restraint, either personal or government restraint. And I find myself sort of fluctuating on that spectrum. And I'm curious where you guys see yourselves on that sort of degrowth to techno-optimist spectrum. Elizabeth Colbert. I think it's a really, really good question. And it's sort of the, one of the many humongous questions that hangs over climate change. Can you just do what we've been doing, but just replace all, out all your energy systems and, and quote unquote solve this problem? And I, I do say that with quotes because we're not solving this problem. We're only either mitigating it or making it worse. And I, I do fall into the school of thought that you can't just keep doing what we're doing. Uh, with whole new energy systems, but actually we have to change the way we live. Um, now that being said, I don't have a mechanism, you know, to get from here to there. Uh, that's a, that's a great uh, a great question, Nate. And just to do a little self promotion, I recently did an article about Al Gore and his daughter Corinna, who are a kind of an interesting uh, human example of this split because. Al Gore, of course, is, a, is the biggest techno-optimist in the world, and Corinna has come down very much on the sort of, her quote was, we can't just keep doing the same stuff and, so, and, and solar power it. Um, my, my instinct with dichotomies like this is to try to synthesize them and get around them. I don't, I don't think that's a helpful dichotomy, and, and, the, and what I would say is that 
innovation comes in response to restraint. That's what innovation grows out of. And so this idea that if we put sharp constraints on particular damaging habits or lifestyles or economic patterns, that our reaction, collective reaction, is just going to be to shrink up and stay in our caves is silly. We'll innovate ways of being happy and prosperous, no matter what constraints are put on us. So I just feel like this fossil-intensive prosperity is not the only available kind of prosperity. Next question. Hi, uh, my name is Ross Hammond. I'm the campaigns director at Stand.Earth. I'm not a lifelong environmentalist. I actually came into this work by working on tobacco, where we made uh, opposition to, to reducing the toll from tobacco a political liability. How do we do the same thing on climate change with state, local, national politicians? Well, I think, it, I think, you know, obviously, as you're suggesting, and, you know, between the legal strategies and the political strategies, there, there, are, there are lots of interesting parallels here. And, you know, the question, I mean, I, I should really flip the question back on you. How do we do that? You know, how do we make opposition to these things? I mean, one, you know, the obvious problem, and it's not subtle, is there's, you know, tons and tons of money changing hands here. Uh, and there are a lot of parts of the country where, you know, the economy is based on digging up fossil fuels and putting, you know, the carbon into the air. So it's, it's, it's a really, really, they're huge political issues. Um, and I don't, I think that it's a lot harder than tobacco, I'm going to say that, because of, of the economic implications for every single person in this country. Um, but it, it should be doable. And there are a lot of good parallels there. Can I just say one, one thing about it. There are lots of disanalogies between tobacco and climate and, and analogies. But the one thing about tobacco is there was always an easily, readily available alternative to smoking, i.e. not smoking. <laughs> <laughs> we are only now at the very beginning of having easily, readily available alternatives to burning the oil that these oil executives are being put on trial soon for... for so, so that, to me, is a key piece of the puzzle. You're not going to be able to make oil guys into villains unless their customers have alternatives. And there is a moral dimension to that as well. Uh, let's go to our next question. Welcome. Uh, Claire Brown, economics professor, UC Berkeley. For Elizabeth, in talking about policy, I think one of the most impactful ones is helping developing countries, India, China, and so forth, to develop without fossil fuel but with clean energy. How do you get that into the discussion? Well, that's a really, I mean, that was very much part of Paris. There's, you know, there was a $100 billion supposedly, you know, green climate fund uh, to which the Obama administration had pledged $3 billion, which many people said was, you know, just ridiculously inadequate for the U.S. But that's a huge issue. You know, we like to say, you know, don't do as we, as we did, but do as we say. And developing countries very, very um, reasonably come back and say, okay, help us do that because, um, you know, otherwise we're just going to do exactly what you guys did. And this nativist moment that we're in, this anti-foreign uh, aid moment that we're in, or maybe that we're always in, uh, is really uh, completely at odds with that. And, uh, you know, I don't know how we're going to... That, that's like just another problem added on to the many that we have. Greg Dalton has been talking about covering catastrophe with New Yorker writer Elizabeth Colbert, author of the 2014 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Sixth Extinction, and David Roberts, staff writer at Vox, where he covers climate stories. 
To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.